Shit Platypus Says, Episode 48. On this episode of SPS, our resident financial guru, Platypus member Wentai, sits down with Pamela Nogales to discuss the so-called Great Resignation, or Big Quit. They take up the concerns over birth rates and mental illness, as well as how social democratic policies tend to naturalize the crisis of capital. In the second half of the episode, Pamela interviews Andy Gitlitz, co-host of the Antifada podcast and author of I Want to Believe, Positism, UFOs and Apocalypse Communism. They discuss the trajectory of the millennial left from the anti-war movement through Occupy to BLM and the obstacles to building an independent political party on the left. You can find the links to panels, books and articles mentioned in the episode description. As always, if you like what you hear, if you like the podcast, share it and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, the fifth European Platypus Convention is coming up soon. This year we will host a conference in this sleepy little city called Vienna and it will take place from the 8th until the 10th of September. So, see you in Vienna. Hi, Wentai. Hey, Pam. So, I have questions for you. You've been uh, a mainstay of our education to all things uh, related to the economy. And uh, right now we're facing a big mystery here of the great resignation, which I guess we've been talking about for quite some time. Um, if my memory serves me right, like since kind of mid pandemic mm. onwards, um, some narrative about the great resignation has come up. Um, so maybe I would ask you for a kind of quick definition of it first, and then we can go deeper into it. Yeah, absolutely. I think when people talk about the great resignation, what they're really responding to is that for the first time in decades, there's actually fewer unemployed people per job opening. And that's caused labor shortages pretty much everywhere, but especially in like the low end of the market. So um, if you think of like service jobs and things like that. Um, and so there's been a lot of, I think, attempt to figure out like, why are people quitting their jobs? Labor force participation is lower than it was before COVID. The unemployment rate is also extremely low right now, especially relative to, you know, the fact that demand is weakening and people are worried about a recession right now. Um, and so all of that has triggered a lot of thinking around, you know, why aren't people actually working? And I should also mention, this isn't just a problem in the US. Um, it's also a problem in China as well. So in China, there's what you call the lay flat movement. And what that is, is basically a bunch of millennials and younger people in China electing to not work or to work, you know, very few hours of the week because they've kind of thrown up their hands and are like, well, what am I going to do? I mean, I'm not going to get married, have kids. I can't afford an apartment anyways. So why don't I just like lay flat? So I think the great resignation is something that um, it's basically I would summarize it as a you know, high quit rates, low unemployment, low labor force participation. And you're seeing that in the U.S. as well as in China. What about Western European countries? Is this somehow like an exception or is it just hitting the United States and China? I think actually I haven't looked at the data in Western Europe. I would guess that in places like the U.K. and Germany, labor force participation has also been declining. Um, so I would say I would guess so, but I'm actually not sure. But I, I think what people are, um, I think what a lot of people are missing about the analysis is that in my view, this is not a trend that just began with COVID. So out of, I think from an absolute basis, just to kind of put the numbers out there. So in the US, right, there's about 320 million people in total and the civilian non-institutional population over 16. So think of that as all the people that are actually available to work is about 264 million. Out of that 264 million, guess how many people are not in the labor force? 64 million? A hundred million. 
are not in the labor force, right? So 100 million out of 264 million potential workers are not in the labor force. And what it means to not be in the labor force is that you don't have a job and you also haven't looked for a job in the last four weeks. So if you've looked for a job in the last four weeks, but you don't have a job, you're counted as unemployed. So the labor force is everyone who's employed and unemployed. The people not in the labor force is everyone else. It's 100 million people. Um, I think that's just an astonishingly large number of people because I think it's hard to dispute that in today's world, right? Um, it's hard to participate in society, as in the primary way that people participate in society and leverage social resources and infrastructure is predominantly through their jobs. Obviously, there's some people who have participate in society and contribute in society outside of their jobs, but the predominant way for most people to participate in society and actually not only use social resources, but have social resources use them is through their jobs. So the fact that there's 100 million people not in the labor force in an absolute sense should actually raise a lot of questions about why. And the, the thing that I would try to underscore with the Great Resignation commentary is I actually think people are missing the forest for the trees. The trees are like the quit rates during COVID. The forest, however, is that labor force participation for men in the United States has been declining since 1947. So in 1947, 87% of men participate in the labor force, and that's 68% today. And the two periods of the greatest decline, right, of men exiting the labor force were in the 1960s and 70s when neoliberalism was getting shaped and since the great financial crisis in 2008. And if you zoom in on men between 25 to 54, i.e. the prime age working men, um, those not participating in the labor force increased from 6% in 1976 to 11% today. So these are like massive long-term, you know, trends that have been going on for decades. And then on the women's side, obviously, you know, people have this impression that women have been empowered over the last hundred years. And if you look at women's labor force participation rate, um, it did increase significantly between 1947 and the year 2000. So it went from 32% of women to 60% of women. Um, and the greatest period of increase was 1960 to 1990, where you had a substantial portion of women come into the labor force. However, if you look at women's labor force participation, it appears to have stagnated in the early 2000s. And since 2008, women's labor force participation has actually declined by 300 basis points to 56.8% today. So it's gone from 60% in 2000 to 56.8% today. And if you look at fertility rates on top of that, right, women are having like fewer children per women ever since 2008. So I think this raises a serious question of like, what the hell is going on, right? Since 2008, women have exited the labor force or rather fewer and fewer women are participating in the labor force and yet women are having less children, right? As well since 2008. So what are they doing? And what are all these people doing? So from that 100 million that are outside of the labor force, which, as you said, includes people, that means that people are not looking for a job, right? No. Right. So how many of those people or do they count if they are on disability or receiving some kind of support from the state? Yeah. So out of that 100 million, some portion of them, I would say most people rationalize the 100 million as follows. They say, well, there's some portion of women who are like um, primary, you know, women and men who are like stay at home moms or dads, right? That's why they're not in the labor force. They are performing a valuable social function. They're staying at home with their kids. There's some portion of that 16 plus civilian population that's in college. So that's also a legitimate you know, portion of people that are not in the labor force. Then there's some portion of people who are on disability. And that's also some portion of, right, the people who are not in the labor force. And so you start to like the, I guess the, the, the standard economist explanation is essentially like, well, there's disabled people, there's people who have gotten really rich on crypto and retired early or something like that, right? There's people who are, um, 
stay-at-home parents, there's people who are in college, like there's all these ways to explain away this phenomenon, but I actually think if we look into, if we drill into these numbers, one, I would say a lot of these explanations don't hold water to me, and two, um, I would say look at the trend, right? Why is the trend down so significantly? And what does that mean for society? What does that mean from a point of view of like social disintegration and atomization? I mean, I guess this brings up for me like a connection I can make in my head is the industrial reserve army, right? Mm -hmm. Like the presence and the continuation of the second industrial revolution that we're still in somehow and how that manifests pathologically like in our time. But mm -hmm. it sounds like part of the population that we're talking about here, the people that are outside of the like labor force are people who are, might be like, just like lumpen proletariat, like people that are maybe even hooked on opioids or just yep. like completely outside of yep. the workforce altogether. And so they're not really part of the industrial reserve. I mean, not in the same way, at least that Marx imagined it, where people could just be tapped into, right? right. Like, so exactly. it's something else. I think that's, I think that's right. So like, I would, I don't know how we think about a lot of the Marxist categories today, right, like the Industrial Reserve Army, but maybe one way we, we could think about it is just simply the number of unemployed people out there relative to the number of job openings. Okay, so for a very long time, there was always more unemployed people per job opening. And if we think about what that practically means is there's always more people who are looking for work than there are job openings. So if, if you, Pam, if you go to your boss and you threaten to quit unless he pays you 20% higher wages, he has it in the back of his mind. Well, there's three people out there that I can immediately fill this job opening with, right? So I feel like if we were to have some sense of an industrial reserve army, it would be maybe captured in that dynamic. Now, today, we're living in a very weird moment because on the one hand, you have a giant population that maybe, and I don't mean this in a derogatory manner, but you have a giant surplus population. You have a lot of surplus people, but you don't have any surplus workers. So you have this 100 million people that's sitting inside the 164 million 16 and up civilian population, but they're not actually available to work. So today, because there's fewer unemployed people, right? There's fewer people looking for work than there are job openings. Today, theoretically, if you go into your boss and you say, if you go to your boss and you say, I'm gonna quit, right? Unless you pay me up 20%, unless he's gonna do one of two things. One, he's either actually gonna pay you up that 20% because he knows it's gonna be really hard to replace you. Or two, he's going to say, you know what? I'm gonna still try to run my store. I'm still gonna try to run my airport with just with fewer workers, right? And the outcome of the second is a very short-term solution because obviously if you're running the same service but with fewer workers, the quality of your service is going to deteriorate. And that's what we're seeing happen across a lot of these industries, right? Like if you've gone to an airport recently and God forbid had to check your luggage, how long did it take for you to get your luggage back? Was your luggage damaged? Was your luggage lost, right? All of these are because a lot of businesses are electing to make the short-term decision of, I'm not gonna pay Pam up 20%. I'm gonna have her quit and I'm gonna run and provide a shittier service and charge more for it, right, because of inflation. And so I think you're living in this weird moment where like, I'm not sure how you would think about the Industrial Reserve Army because on the one hand, there's hundreds, right, there's um, 100 million, quote, surplus people. But on the other hand, there's not enough surplus workers. Yeah. So it's not the Industrial Reserve Army. It's the kind of lumpen proletariat who is not available to be tapped into for work. Exactly. Who is, or for whatever reason, I mean, some of them might, so out of that 100 million people, I think something like five or six million of them say they want to work. And out of that five or six million, one million of them have looked for a job in the last 12 months, but not in the last four weeks, right? So there's a tiny portion of that 100 million that has looked for a job recently, and so they might be available to work. But yeah, the vast majority of that 100 million has not looked for a job in the last 12 months. So we can surmise that for whatever reason, they're not actually um, available to work. I mean, I still think it's extremely relevant from a social standpoint 
because obviously, um, like like I said, if we if we buy into the idea that the predominant way for people to participate in society, to use society and be used by society, is still through their jobs, like if we buy into that basic premise, that means there's a hundred million people that society is not tapping into fully. So in terms of missing the forest for the trees and you put it yeah. in a longer historical perspective of like post-World War II and this like longer decline, how would you how would you explain that longer decline. trend? Yeah. Yeah. So I think um there's two major explanations that are out there for the decline in labor force participation and I think both of them are worth considering. The first explanation is a demographic explanation. So this explanation is basically that our population in the US and as well as the population in China and elsewhere, um, our populations are aging. So there's a larger number of older people that are offsetting basically lower fertility rates and lower net migration. So if you look at the demographic trend between 1960 and 2021, the percent of the total population over the age of 55 went from 17% to 30%, right? So um, that's one major like explanation is demographics. And demographics probably account for over half of the total decline in labor force participation. Now, a lot of people, and then I'll get to the other explanations, but I'll first say a lot of people, like economists, just take that demographic explanation and they consider it like falling from the sky, meaning they think it's an exogenous shock, right, to the population, um, and that that's the final answer. But for me, I think it's really worth asking, like, why is our population aging? Why are fertility rates going down? So if we look at the fertility data, right, the number of births for women has fallen from 36 in 1960 to 1.6 today. And the most significant decline occurred after 2008 to today. So from 2008 to today, women went from having over two children per woman to like 1.6 children per woman. And this is again, particularly striking because labor force participation declined for women as well during that time, which begs the question, well, what are they doing, right? They're not working, they're also not having kids. So what are they doing? How is society actually using them and how are they participating in society? And so I think the demographic explanation cannot be considered purely exogenous, meaning like there's a lot of things that go into demographic trends and fertility considerations. Obviously, if you poll women, like why haven't you had children yet? A lot of women would probably say things like, yeah, a lot of women would probably say things like it's too expensive, the cost of housing, you know, or they can't find a suitable partner. We know household, exactly, childcare, we know household formation is down, right? People maybe find it harder to meet um, partners that they can really commit to, despite like all of the dating apps that are out there and matchmaking functions that are out there. Um, but the other big reason is I feel like there's been a cultural zeitgeist of what I would broadly term as like pessimism and a very consumption-oriented nihilism um, that is out there. And I feel like that is the unifying trend, you know, between China and the US and maybe Western Europe. Um, like, why do people feel very pessimistic about their outlook for the future? Why is this not a world in which people are excited to have 10 babies in, right? Um, so I think like the demographic thing is not an um, exogenous, it doesn't explain away labor force participation because the real question is, is like, why isn't there more optimism? And I think on top of that, we have this, there's been a paradigm shift, right? Between thinking of more people as equivalent to more workers, more people with ideas, like more people equals more wealth. There's been a paradigm shift from that into thinking more people equals more mouths to feed, more people equals like more, um, uh, more uh, I guess, uh, people to drain the resources in the environment. And that um, paradigm shift is very old, right? We know that paradigm shift occurred between Adam Smith and Malthus. That paradigm shift is not a new one. Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly a kind of internalized millennium, like austerity that just feels true to the experience of a generation. That's a great way to describe it. So those are the demographic, um, that's one part, which accounts for, call it like, you know, anywhere between like 70 to 80% of the 
decline in labor force participation is purely demographic. However, there's a chunk of the decline in labor force participation that isn't demographic. And let me just read you the, the list of explanations that economists have cited for the non-demographic causes of the decline in labor force participation. So these are, one, deindustrialization slash outsourcing supply chains to China and the rest of Asia. Two, the increased use of automation. Three, the increased number of people taking disability benefits. Four, the increased share of prisons of individuals with prison records. Five, the prevalence of, quote, leisure technology. Six, the increased use of opioids. And seven, the increased term and prevalence of graduate school education. My point, is, my point in listing all of these is to show there's been a hodgepodge of explanations for the non-demographic causes, and people think in a very sterilized manner about this. They think there's the demographic cause that's exogenous, we can't do anything about it, and then there's the non-demographic cause, which we can do things about by tweaking various policies. So maybe we should get rid of certain disability benefits. Maybe we should decrease this, what the Chinese government is thinking. Maybe we should decrease the use of leisure technology, right? And let's, if we're going to try to tackle the problem, Problem, let's try to tackle the problem piece by piece and let's bring a variety of policy solutions to consider for each individual piece of the puzzle. And I think it actually um, perhaps is worth considering that all of these symptoms, demographic included, um, the pessimism that people feel about the world, which drives them to not have children, which drives them to throw themselves into leisure technology or opioids or whatever it is, right? The pessimism that people feel like all of that is probably not independent of each other, and all of that probably comes down to a deeper social question that we should be asking, which is why is there a section of the population that is superfluous? Right, yeah, that's right. I mean, so what you're marking here in this downward turn of participation within the labor market is this greater capacity of capital rendering people superfluous. I think that's definitely a part of it. Um, I'm trying to think, like, how much of it, though, is really productivity gains? Meaning some of it just might be, like, total destruction. Oh, yeah, like, I was going to say, I don't, I don't mean that right. capital <laughs> is rendering people superfluous because it's somehow being able to produce value More without stuff. them. Right but maybe exactly. it's actually destroying. Exactly, I think, um, I feel like the past couple of decades and a lot of these trends that we're talking about, I think it's been destructive of both human material, uh, meaning labor, but also of capital, hmm. right? Um, maybe we could have gotten way more innovation. Maybe we could have gotten way more productivity um, if, people had been participating more in society. Now, I get, like I've talked to other people about this and I would say a, a frequent explanation that I encounter is, uh, not a frequent explanation, but frequent pushback that I get is, well, isn't it a good thing, Wentai, that people aren't working? Doesn't that mean that we've achieved a level of technical success, right, such that people don't need to work? Um, and I think, there is something to that, right? There is something about how, like, what we should expect out of the dynamism of commercial society, our productivity gains are more output and fewer labor hours, right, to generate the same output. But on the other hand, again, it seems to be the case that the predominant way in which people can participate in society still remains their jobs. And I don't know how much of that 100 million population, right, if we really talked to them and understood the underlying causes for not participating in the labor force, I don't know how much of it is truly voluntary versus not, right? Because there might be some people who are like legitimately like, oh, I really um, find it very fulfilling to, you know, stay at home with my children, like, and that's the best use of my time, right, for society. But maybe there's other people who are, um, you know, staying at home, taking care of a sick relative who would rather be doing something else, right? But they have this obligation to fulfill at home. Maybe there are some people who just feel extremely discouraged um, and you know, would otherwise want to actually be able to contribute more to society and also have society use them up more, but they feel very discouraged um, and for whatever reason they can't get out of that. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, in terms of like a Marxist or socialist perspective, if there were a socialist party, you would organize people on the basis that they're participating in society and that they're workers and they're contributing right to the labor force, so potentially contributing to the labor force. And that's how you would organize them. That's like the power that you'd want to collectively bring together. And so the idea that there are some people who simply are just not part of that means that it also means less capacity and resources to change society. Exactly. And I I found ever since I started looking at this and talking to like my peers about it, I've just found it so astonishing, like how the immediate like answer to this is first, well, is it even a bad thing? And then the second is, well, I'm sure we can explain it away. Yeah. I'm sure there's, you know, very normal explanations for this. And I think that it's just worth asserting that perhaps there isn't a good reason for this. Perhaps it doesn't make sense to organize society um, in this way. Especially if you think about that long list of non-demographic causes that I read, no one would say these are good things, except for automation. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the funny thing is that yeah. it, people did complain about automation as like rendering other people superfluous, right? And so like somehow the great power of capital advancing beyond like human labor was supposed to be responsible for this unemployment. However, the way that you're talking about it now and the way you're presenting it in terms of like the destruction of capital, right, means that automation potentially could be happening at a much higher rate in a very different way that it is happening now. And so, yeah, it's a kind of inversion of that narrative, in fact. That's exactly right. And I, I think that part of the hope, right, in the 60s and 70s was that we were going to get a lot of automation and a lot more wealth and people were going to work less and consume more. And I think what went part of what went wrong with that, um, with that approach, obviously, was that we got a lot of, uh, well, capital, right, and industries were able to find extremely cheap labor overseas. And so as a result, we were able to actually substitute in the place of what would have been automation and capital, we were able to just substitute very, very cheap workers. And as long as there was a very wide prevalence of very, very cheap workers, there's not as much incentive for firms to actually substitute labor, uh, sorry, substitute capital for labor and actually invest in labor saving automation technologies. Perhaps right now, and again, that's why I'm saying this is in a very weird time right now, because on the one hand, you have a lot of surplus people. On the other hand, you don't have a lot of surplus workers. And maybe the short-term solution to not having a lot of surplus workers is to drive the economy into a recession so that people will be desperate, right, again, and make themselves available for cheap, flexible work. Um, but maybe the long-term solution has to be more automation unless we can find another giant clump of a non-aging population overseas. Because in the 19, after the 60s and 70s, not only did you have a billion people in the labor force overseas become available to work, but you had all these women in the US, right, join the labor force. And so all of that immensely increased the labor force that was available to U.S. and European production. And today we're seeing these declining labor force trends, a big part of which is demographic. That's going to take a while to come down. And again, I think the short-term hope out there is, well, maybe we'll have a giant recession, right? And maybe that's what's going to bring workers back into the fold. <laughs> that's what's going to make people desperate enough again. And again, that's a very short-term solution. Sorry. But just to clarify for our listeners, it's not as if there's like some men with like cigars and back rooms going, we need to plan the Great Recession. No, no, no. I'm not saying that at all. I actually think it's happening in a way that nobody wants it to happen. So meaning the reason we have inflation right now is because we have a lot of excess demand relative to the supply that we've actually built out. Um, and we have a supply problem, not a demand problem, meaning like the solution is really to expand supply so that we don't have inflation. But as Powell has kept saying and been consistent about throughout 2021, um, he doesn't have any supply side tools. It's not within the scope of the Fed to go out there and expand food supply and energy supply and industrial and chip capacity. He only has demand side tools. So the only thing Powell can actually do to control for inflation is to destroy demand as opposed to increase 
supply. And his demand side tool is I'm going to raise rates, I'm going to make it more expensive, right? I'm gonna increase the cost of capital for businesses um, and I'm going to draw demand down so that demand and supply can kind of come into balance again. So no, I don't think that it's a coordinated approach. I think it's actually lamented by people all over the world that this is the inflation tool that we have. That's right, yeah. And then in such, in this way, it's the productivity, the capacities of humanity are somehow not under the conscious decision-making of human beings and capital lies at the heart of that force, of that unconscious force. Right, we have no social uh, infrastructure or maybe we could call it, we have no subject, right, that's consciously able to shape um, supply right now. But that's what we desperately need. We need to expand supply. But instead, we're going to destroy demand, and then things are going to be bad, and then maybe people, companies, will be even less likely to invest to expand supply. But I think the real hope and the real optimism in this particular moment is perhaps that we get through this period, that we engage in a big supply build-out, not some bullshit build-back-better government public sector build-out, but a private sector-led expansion of supply, and that that, if I can call it this primitive accumulation of assets, also uh, coincides with and engenders a formation of human material and people. Perhaps that is the optimistic future we could we could look to. So you need big capitalists that are risk-takers to invest and build out supply. And that build out of assets should also be commensurate with a build out of people and a build out of human material and labor. But seriously, ever since I've been looking at this, because I've been looking at it for my job at first, and I've been like talking to people that I know about it, and it's like everyone just, I I can't even tell you like the, the psyop, like that's what I feel like it is. It's like people are just convinced that it's normal yeah. for half of the population to not be used like it's not normal it shouldn't you be know normal. i think like as you were talking about it and giving yeah. the non-demographic causes i think also this is feeds into there's this big concern about mental health today right and right. it's opioids and also people who are disabled right because of their mental health and like so now there's been this focus on okay we need to bring these people into the fold actually and that's what meaning there's like a social democratic narrative about how to fix that problem which is that you need more state institutions and support for people right you need to address the mental health problem especially after covid it's naturalizing or reifying this superfluous population problem that's a really good point we're just going to have to deal with the depressed people you know we just have done a really bad job at dealing with the depressed people and if we do a better job then they can be integrated that's a really good point and i had not even thought of it like that but there's an institutional effort to naturalize the superfluousness of people um and that is really um I think pretty like insidious. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing is, is like two other things would be like, why have, why did school shootings start in 1980? There's always been guns. There's always been crazy people, but school shootings started in 1980 and not after or not before. Right. So it's like, it clearly has something to do with social disintegration. That's one thing. And then the other thing is like, I saw a stat that if you're unemployed, you're like uh, three times more likely to commit suicide. Right. So for every person that's unemployed, think about the, I don't know, 12 people in their lives that they're impacting. Like all of this has massive external um, like impact. And then the other thing is, is so I know that uh, Conrad Hamilton wrote an article where he suggested that getting rid of Roe v. Wade is a maybe capitalist conspiracy to like uh, have more workers or something like that. Right. And I think that that's I think that that's total bunk because I don't think there's like men sitting smoking cigars sitting in a back room like planning all this out (laughs) i know but on the on the other hand like it shouldn't escape our attention that roe v wade got repealed around the same time that china got rid of the one child policy and has been seriously pushing the fertility effort and on the other hand it doesn't escape my attention that the same time that we passed roe v wade in 1973 right China, around that time, also starts beginning this huge effort to forcibly sterilize people in the countryside and perform involuntary abortions on women. So it's like, I feel like it's more of like an invisible hand type thing. It's not a conspiracy type thing. But we desperately need more supply, more assets, and more 
labor. But that's, I mean, what you're talking about, like sometimes it's sort of unconscious Malthusianism, but like other yeah. times it's more <laughs> conscious, you know, and it's like, well, what's the problem? We need to manage the population. That's, that's the problem. And yeah. The more I talk to people about fertility or babies, like the more it's like, it is a rehashing of the Smith versus Malthus. It's like, is more people more wealth or is more people more mouths to feed? Is more people more producers or is more people more consumers? Yeah. And is I really more people yeah. better mentally for my health. Like, because actually, you know, I was just reading um, the uh, D'Amelio with the kids, with my students, yeah. right? And like one of the ways that he talks about family is like uh, a shelter in the storm and like having family around you. It's a way of protecting yourself and like feeling loved and happy. And we're not that we're like, yeah. I mean, I can speak for my generation that like, I don't think about like my little family as like a, ha a source of happiness. I'm just like, I've got like student loans to pay and I can't afford the child and it's going to be more stressful for me and I'm going right. to be unhappy. So exactly. like not having the child would make me better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. it's reversal. Right. It's a reversal. And it's like, of course, you have these pilgrims who are struggling through very, very hard times and they pop out 10 babies each and they build a whole world and they make the revolution. Like, it's like, that's why it's like, it's, it's the fertility thing isn't just like a people honestly, like they think about it as purely exogenous and it's like, it's not exogenous. The same thing that's impacting all these other non-demographic factors is clearly impacting young women's decision about children. Oh, for sure. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, Wentai, this has been enlightening. And thank you for your patience in explaining this madness of the world we find ourselves in. And maybe we can check in with you in a yeah. few months to see how this is all playing out for us millennials. Yeah. Thank you very much, Pam. Thank you, yeah. Wentai. Bye. Who's a co-host of the Antifada podcast and author of I Want to Believe, Posadism, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism. He's been writing on radical history and counterculture. He's been featured in the New York Times, The Nation, and New Inquiry. He's involved with the Autonomous, Woodbine Space, and Ridgewood Queens, and he's participated in several platypus panels in New York, including What Does Climate Change? What is Socialism? International Social Democracy? And most recently, The Crisis in Ukraine and the left uh, this year. You can find links to the panel recordings in the episode description. Welcome, Andy. Hey, thanks for having me. I'd like to ask you a very basic Platypus 101 question to get us rolling today. I'd like to know, how did you come to the left? What were the people, texts, critical ideas that inform your understanding of the history and tasks of left politics? Well, I suppose it would be the anti-war movement, um, although I had some kind of leftist uh, sympathies before that. I was in high school for 9-11 and the uh, subsequent invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, and uh, yeah, I went to protests in New York City and, you know, saw my first black bloc at one of those protests and subsequently at the, uh, the 2004 RNC as well. So that got me interested in, in anarchism. You know, hardcore punk was also at that time, uh, anarchism was very hegemonic within it, especially uh, crime think. That was sort of the place to be if you were if you had any kind of revolutionary inclinations in the 2000s. And then I think since the financial crisis, a lot of people who were in that milieu uh, started to read Marx and uh, start to think a little bit more economically. And I've been more in the uh, ultra-left or autonomous milieu since then. Do you find there's a connection in some of the ideas today, the demands for an anti-war movement and this period of 2004 that you were involved in the anti-war movement? 
I'm not aware of much of an anti-war movement. It seems like the, the discourse around the war in the United States, at least among the people that I follow or I'm aware of their activity, is either uh, very pro-Ukraine with a kind of left tinge to it, like supporting refugees or trying to support left-wing paramilitaries within the Ukrainian army, or, you know, being implicitly pro-Putin, claiming that, you know, uh, the media is censoring the Russian line and Russia is justified and and all this stuff. So, so both of these positions are uninteresting to me in a way that, you know, the, the movement against the Iraq war really involved a lot of blockades, you know, shutting down cities, trying to disrupt uh, the normal function of the United States in a, as, as a means to prevent the war initially. So that's the kind of anti-war movement that I could possibly, you know, support or be inspired by. But uh, I don't see much of that today. I heard Erin Haigwood, who's the current president of Platypus, on the Antifada podcast. She gave a really interesting sort of overview of the imperialism pamphlet by Lenin. I think she was on back in March. And one of the things that I heard her trying to clarify, and there seemed to be some agreement across both you and your co-host and her, was that imperialism is not an international policy. Like, it's not an international policy of states. And then you all got into a discussion about how we can characterize imperialism as an, as an authentic expression of bourgeois democracy. So I wanted to just kind of maybe rehash some of those points and see what uh, of that uh, we can build on. Because one of the things that we wanted to do in the panel was try to gather how the left should understand the current crisis in Ukraine. And many of those who've responded to the war simply cite Lenin's imperialism pamphlet um, for whatever purpose, right? So defend Ukraine or anti-Putin. And so um, having Aaron talk about imperialism as an expression of bourgeois democracy, um, that is, as an expression of the general will of society, puts a wrench in the works that I thought was productive. This raises this issue of the internal crisis of bourgeois democracy after 1848 and the ways in which imperialist expansion is in part prompted by the gains of the working class movement where capital needs to seek to expand through the accumulation of value elsewhere. And I, I wonder to what extent you agreed with this conception of imperialism or how do we understand imperialism today? How should the left understand imperialism? I think there really is something to be said for the way uh, the American working class understands their material issues and their immiseration um, historically through, uh, for example, gas prices. And I think Trump mobilized this so well when he said the Iraq war was a big mistake, but you know, since we're there, we got to take the oil. This is a very effective talking point because people are like, well, yeah, why not? Like, we should plunder this country because we invaded it. We we uh, spent so much money there. We should get something out of that, which means lower gas prices. And so I think we're seeing something in a reverse effect now where the way people are really experiencing the war in the United States on a day-to-day -day basis is inflation, particularly in terms of gas prices. I co-wrote an article on the site SM28, that's the spirit of May 28, sm28.org, called On the War in Ukraine and the Socioeconomic Struggles to Come, where I basically pose this theory that instead of looking towards an, an anti-war movement, we can look towards the way popular struggles arise around it. And certainly there's been quite a few of these throughout the Russian Federation and in Kazakhstan, which is about gas prices. They're in uh, Sri Lanka right now. There's something in Uzbekistan, which is something of a nationalist separatist movement. And in Ecuador, there's this major uprising around fuel prices. And we're just going to see more and more of this. Uh, in other places, you know, if, if you're uh, a campesino, for example, and the price of gas goes up a few pennies, you suddenly just have no money at all because the margins are so small uh, in, in the way you're living your life. Obviously, with the food crisis, you know, spiraling out of control, uh, we're going to see more and more bread and fuel riots, which have been the motivator for major uprisings over the last 12, 15 years. There was a time when imperialism, you could say there was a kind of comfort to it, 
as long as the uh, the working class of that country felt some of the gains in keeping prices low. Certainly, uh, if uh, Sri Lanka and Ecuador are any example of, of what we can see, we're going to see major, major uprisings across the world in a very different political tenor than the left has come to uh, recognize uprisings. So not about any uh, specific political goal, not anti-war or national liberation or something like that, but really working class people saying, I can no longer afford to live my life. This is what leftists and pro-revolutionaries ought to be thinking about and orienting towards instead of, you know, what side of the war am I on? I think that we should go a bit deeper on this. It seems like what you're trying to present is that a sort of spontaneous discontent among people across the world in their experience of the war by affecting their daily lives, as you put it, needs to be paid attention or that the quote unquote left needs to orient towards. And I wonder what that means. In practice, it seems like when the left quote unquote orients towards the kind of spontaneous discontents, uh, what they end up doing is tailing behind the opportunistic leadership that arises within those movements. And that then no matter what the energy or even the imagination of people on the ground is, that they end up being redirected towards the reinscribing of the status quo, A, or, um, you know, uh, another kind of petty bourgeois racket that ends up leading this struggle for whatever social democratic politics in that state. And I wonder what you think the left ought to do in when you say orient itself towards these spontaneous expressions of social discontent. Like I said before, there's very little the left can do. But if you know we're talking about ourselves and our comrades and like how we can think about what kind of practical activity we should prepare for or orient towards, certainly a struggle like what popped up in uh, Ecuador, for example, needs to be, you know, engaged with. And you're totally right that these struggles always, there always emerges a, a kind of party of order within them, a leadership class of some kind, usually petty bourgeois or just, you know, some front for the, uh, the traditional ruling class. This is the, the case in Sri Lanka right now, where they're about to have an election that's probably going to elect, you know, a, a proxy for the, the Rajapaksa family to renegotiate the IMF loans. So people on the ground in Sri Lanka obviously know that all of this struggle will be for naught if all they get is a another IMF deal package out of it. People aren't, they're not stupid. What the left can do and what we can contribute, by that I mean we should mostly go there to learn and to observe because I think the left should not have a leadership uh, position in these struggles. But really a, a supportive position. But what we can offer is that we've read a lot of history and we've gone to a lot of these struggles and we have some theory about how they play out. So what you just said about how there's this opportunistic petty bourgeois leadership is something that we can contribute and we can find the people who already know this or already suspect this is the case. And we can try to strengthen the struggle within the struggle to try to strengthen the, uh, the party of anarchy, as it were, the proletarian element that doesn't just want to install a, a new uh, IMF-friendly government, but actually push it as far as it can possibly go. Uh, we can't do that on our own, but we can be there and align in some way with the elements that are ready to do that. In what is to be done, in one of Lenin's footnotes, he talked about how the party, of course, doesn't just include those who were intellectuals, but rather that includes and features people like Proudhon, this idea that it would be constituted right by proletarian elements, as well as those middle class elements that had the time and freedom to think, but that the party was a place to build leadership. And so I'm slightly puzzled by, and maybe you can um, define what, what you mean when you say that the left shouldn't be in a position of leadership and how you're contrasting that to the party of, of anarchy. Given the fact that we agree that these movements are often taken up by opportunistic leaders that reinstate the status quo or pose some kind of new alternative that extends capitalistic rule, wouldn't it be decisive and important for the left to be in a position of leadership rather than tail behind those elements? 
the left as it exists should not do that. <laughs> the left as it exists is has pretty bad politics, has a pretty bad orientation uh, towards the proletariat. And so, no, I would not want to see the left uh, in control any more than I think that, uh, you know, Kashama Sawant is like a revolutionary force within Seattle or something like that. In my experiences with the George Floyd uprising, with Black Lives Matter, with Occupy, Standing Rock, uh, the anti-globe struggle, everything that I've personally witnessed and, and played some part in, you see this kind of activist or leftist strata that's pushing towards this um, organizational conciliation with the government. Like in, in 2008 specifically, there was a, a huge part of the left wanted to push Obama to the left, and that was their orientation. And that there are some people who wanted to occupy schools, you know, uh, occupy uh, uh, schools throughout the UC system, for example, with a message of this isn't just about education. This is about uh, our lives. This is about our, our work. This is about our homes. And this economic crisis gives us the opportunity to understand how fragile this all is and how much better it would be if it wasn't managed by this capitalist class, but managed by ourselves. And that kind of sort of adventurist activity um, led to Occupy Wall Street, which, you know, for all of its limits and all of its uh, failures, was really a, a new uh, a new crest in the wave of American classroom during my lifetime, where suddenly you see this movement with mass popularity, uh, po uh, participation all across the country of people really asking uh, for the first time really serious economic questions about wealth distribution, implicitly about class, about democracy and what that really means. So obviously, in, in one way, out of Occupy, you get the DSA, you get the candidacies of Sanders, you get this popularity of democratic socialism. Um, but then you also get a lot of people who experienced direct democracy, communal living, confrontational protests with the police, and uh, a direct action. And they experienced that in all of their limitations and all of their idiocies and uh, frustrations, and also in all, all the ways it's effective and all the ways inspiring and resonant. You could say that there's a, a permanent revolutionary quality to these, uh, these uprisings. Every time we see one of these uprisings that I've mentioned, they tend to start where the last one left off, indicates a, a rising action within the people who are willing to struggle in the United States, not just to get some other leadership in there, but to really confront the state and capital. And the best example of that, of course, is the George Floyd uprising, which you know immediately starts with burning down a police precinct, a signal to the proletariat across the United States that the state is vulnerable, and the signal was received, and there was a tax on the carceral state and on capital all across this country for a week that were so ferocious that it basically couldn't be policed. And it, it really sh it revealed how fragile the United States security apparatus is. The next struggle is going to be way more intense. And so this is something that I'm thinking about orienting towards because I don't see the left, I don't see that going anywhere. But I do see massive proletarian uprising like the George Floyd uprising potentially evolving into something that can really change the dominant order in the United States. And that's what I consider the party of anarchy are the people really pushing towards that a decisive confrontation where you can't really go back. The party of anarchy is the epithet that was used against those standing against the party of order, which Marx is talking about in the class struggle of France. It seems like for Marx is an occasion to say that there is all of this social discontent and there's different kind of political leadership that could arise from the opposition to the party of order and that there would need to be a, a socialist faction. Um, and so he's he's sort of working through who makes up the opposition, because you brought up our kind of millennial left history, especially in the foreground of my mind now is, is, is Occupy, how many people from different parts of the left came together, right, during this time. And that you could say maybe there was this potential to educate people on the nature of class and capitalism and the necessity for taking power or whatever you think ought to have been the development of, of Occupy towards a, a greater possibility for um, shaping people's lives. But instead, it seems like what it did was 
create the democratic socialist of America or inflate them to a much greater role on the left in the United States. And that all of this energy, all of this spontaneous, confrontational, social discontent that could have been channeled, I guess, in a way to actually fight against bourgeois leadership was then used as the forces behind to prop up Democratic Party fights, right? Progressives versus the center, etc. And the same seems to have happened with the BLM protests where, you know, in a way, Democratic Party members had to defend the burning down of a Minneapolis precinct. And it, it has this funny effect where like the Democratic Party has to defend acts of violence against the state. Why can it do that? Because it's powerful enough that these things won't actually bring the state down. So I'm a bit reticent to accept the idea that somehow this social discontent, these protests build on one another towards greater and greater potential. Instead, they seem to peter out and be taken up by bourgeois leaders. And the left seems to be content in uh, conceding leadership. And so I'm just, I don't know how to conceive of this um, narrative that you've presented of like a building up of force that greater and, and greater forces are, are building on previous moments where it's Occupy, BLM. Where is the power? Is it growing? Is it... I'm having a hard time reconciling my experience of where these movements have gone over the last decade with how you've characterized them. I think your your view is uh, pretty common amongst uh, uh, even the DSA people, for example, who saw the uprising as something very inspirational, but ultimately chaotic and misguided and you know needing of some kind of real political outlet uh, that they stepped in to provide. That's why I'm trying to separate the leftists and the activists who you could say tailed it or you know did their best to uh, contribute to the uprising and the uh, the the proletarian element of it that initiated it and pushed it to its highest points of confrontation. I don't think that there is ever going to be any sort of hope in the activists and left getting together some kind of political option for the proletariat to to join. It's the proletariat that has the ability to change this country. It's the proletariat who knows how to do things. They know how to create, they know how to destroy, they know how to reproduce. A very common experience of leftists when everywhere in the country, when they went to those early days of the George Floyd uprising, was they looked around and they realized, wow, there's a lot of people here that I have never seen before at a protest. And they were talking about mostly young, black, working class people who were ready to go, ready to fight in a way that the left hasn't been. Does that mean that the proletariat is, is more powerful in relation to capital than it was? You're right, it does not. There were no lasting political forms from the uprising. However, the idea that proletarian people can spontaneously mass and attack the state and win, even for a short period of time, is something that no one really thought possible. I think the working class is you know, although there's this attitude on the left that they're very stupid and why would they vote against their own interests or whatever? Why would they go for Biden over Bernie? Particularly, this is they're talking about black voters, is that they're, they're ignorant. And my position is that we actually have a lot to learn from the working class and what they think is possible and how they struggle. I think if there becomes a visible possibility for actually living without capital in the states, we'll see more and more people bring their creativity, their energy, and their skills, and you know all of the logistics that the working class has access to towards building something new. And I think internationally, we are pointing in that direction, not because there's some great leftist ideas out there or some party you know, coordinating it in the shadows, but because that's the only obvious solution to the crises in, into which we're entering. The question would be how, right? There seems to be... Um this notion that people are ready to fight and certainly there seems to be an exhaustion of certain ideas today where people 
are ready to consider alternative options, but the alternative options are simply not there. It seems like we keep on quote-unquote learning lessons, like, okay, perhaps Occupy led to Biden, DSA, and then people learned that that wasn't the option, that there wasn't a viable option, that it didn't actually help their lives. But lessons seem to be lost because there's nowhere to maintain the lesson. Given that the historical lesson, at least in the 19th century for Marx, was the necessity for state power, I wonder to what extent that lesson can be sustained without anything like a party, even if people are willing to fight. Yeah, I don't know how to conceive of a mediation of that social discontent in such a way that it points towards socialism rather than just learning the same lessons over and over again. Well, I think you nailed it that we do need something like a party. But leftists can only conceive of the party as some reiteration of the parties of the past, which there are you know hundreds of them and they don't work. We do need something like the party. And in fact, I think we have something like the party. There are increasing uh, strata of people who have participated in these struggles and have become partisans of, let's just as a shorthand, just keep with my uh, term, the party of anarchy. They went through Occupy. They went through BLM. They saw the way that they are betrayed by the, the leaders of these movements. They see what decisions were made that were retreats and which, which decisions were uh, resonant and successful. These people are not in a singular organization, but they are partisans of a kind of party. Broadly conceived, it's people who want to create a world to live in free from the economy, and increasingly resistant to the state. Uh, so it's something like an autonomous party. Essentially, I, I think Marx describes the party in this way at times as the real movement, uh, something that you can see breathing today. There is a degree of optimism that you're presenting here, which maybe my experience as a as a millennial, I, I have a hard time responding to is it seems like the fact that people are fed up doesn't necessarily lead to greater openings and that perhaps like the capitulation of leadership among the left is a symptom of, of not being able to move forward, that there is there is the energy. I talk to people at the grocery store about the Ukrainian war and they're like, you know, these people, i.e. the government, is getting into some other mess, right? I have nothing to do with that. And that's the attitude the left ought to embrace when talking to people about the war, how to organize like civil society discontent, not to be for Ukraine or for Russia or against Russia or against Putin. But apart from that being present as a discontent, and continuing to recur, obviously, because there's going to be more and more social discontent as capitalism continues to grow and expand and contract. The political option is not um, is not on the table. And so I, I don't know I, if I am a partisan of the party of anarchy. Um, I hope that we start coming up with a plan soon about what to do with all of this energy. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, I'm not against leadership either. I just, you know, I don't want the leadership to be leftists. That's all. <laughs> and maybe you agree with me on that one. Well, the left is dead, Andy. <laughs> so so um, whatever left uh, would come, you know. And yet here we are talking about it. Like, what should the left do? You know, like, yeah. we're not talking about what, uh, what George Washington should do. He's dead, you know. So I think the left, uh, it still hangs on and it still has some, uh, some things to, to teach and to contribute. But... It mostly has to learn. Mm -hmm. That's um, right. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, it was great talking to you. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Cheers. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Delaci. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. 
to contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye! Thank mm-hmm. you.